we, uh, we're in the middle of our, well, not in the middle, we're the second preach in our Esther series, which we're going to carry on through to the end of March. And last week I gave an overview and I spoke about um, the scarlet thread that runs throughout the story, even though there are times when we don't see or hear explicitly what God is doing, we need to know and understand that whenever it works, it is for His glory. And we especially need to understand that looking at the book of Esther, if we apply it to our city here in Dubai. Because it is a city where God isn't explicitly mentioned, where it's not like we necessarily have um, um, the Lord's Prayer said with the first um, part of your work day and other things like that. And yet God is very much at work continually, and especially in our lives, as He was in the lives of Mordecai and of Esther in the story. So I hope you all know the story. One of the characters that we met last week was a, a man by the name of Haman. And uh, when I say his name, he's like that character in the pantomime that everybody boos at, like, Haman, because he was actually a man that, um, that um, wanted to perpetuate the complete genocide of the Jewish people. And uh, basically wanted to, what he wanted to do, and he didn't even understand this, was sever the scarlet thread so that the redemptive purpose of God would come to an end. And uh, how terrible that would have been, obviously that would never happen because God's sovereign purposes always prevail. But uh, if that were uh, hypothetically to take place, we wouldn't be sitting here today. We wouldn't be born again because Christ would never have been born if Esther had not fulfilled her role and ensured that the existence of the Jewish people continued. And so we're going to come to this guy, Haman, and I want to read from Esther chapter 5 and verse 9. And uh, there's this, uh, it's such a powerful just a warning to us about um, offense. And the title of my preach today is Wild and Free, Breaking the Chains of Offense. It's the 5 verse 9 says, And a man went out that day joyful and glad of heart. Doesn't that, doesn't that sound like a really good position to be in? Like he went out joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. And along the way, um, Haman had picked up this offense against Mordecai. And, and I don't know if perhaps Mordecai should have been down. Even the law of the land was that this very senior official, when he walked along, that people should bow down as some sign of respect to him. And it doesn't tell us why Mordecai didn't bow. Maybe he was just stubborn. Maybe he was just being grumpy. Who knows? I don't know. Maybe there was some good spiritual reason, but maybe he also wanted to help. And maybe Haman had every right to be offended at that point. And we'll see that even when we have the right to be offended, it becomes, um, it takes us down the path that we don't want to go down. As I was um, praying this through, I was, I was thinking about the fact that we, um, we didn't always exist. I truly understand that. <laughs> we didn't exist from all eternity past. Only God existed from all eternity past. At some point in time, God created everything, including us. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3 that He created everything out of nothing. That's one of the things that we believe by faith. And it's one of the realities that even the scientists today are grappling with. is like, where did it all come from? We know there's energy. We know that there's matter. But where did it all start? And we believe that it happened by faith. God is the initiator of everything around us. It says in Colossians chapter 1 that we were created by Christ or through Christ and for Christ that we might have this eternal so there's this picture that we see in Genesis chapter 2 where, where um, I, I'm not entirely sure how literal this is. 
of God, the, the pictures of God taking the dirt and, and shaping us and then breathing his life into the dirt so that Adam is created from the dust. And uh, so the next slide, please. It says in Genesis 2 verse 7, God formed man out of the dirt from the ground and blew into his nostrils the breath of life. And man came alive a living soul. And when I, when I was thinking about this, I thought of that time when Jesus, remember when he was healing the man with the blind eyes and he, he spat into the dust and he mixed it into a, a powder of mud and he put it on the man's eyes and so the miracle took place and then he healed. And it's like God takes this clay and he, he imparts life into it and he creates us. And he creates us with a, to be, um, to represent him in his image, not not physical because God is a spirit and it's not a physical image that we necessarily bear, but he creates us with his life inside of us. So, so something of his DNA inside of us. And he gives us feet to stand on and he gives us legs to run with through the field and arms to embrace people and mouths to kiss birth and to, uh, to um, speak words of affection and ears to hear those words and uh, no, noses to smell and, and taste those things. And he's created us as profoundly experiential beings. And he, he wants us to see and to hear and to feel the world that's around us. And he puts us in this perfect world in God the Trinity. And he gives us companionship and he gives us love. If you want to go to the next slide, Alyssa. And um, you've got an amazing face today. And, um, and he tells us to go and to grow and to multiply. And the, and the picture I have in my, in my mind here is the, the, what God had in mind, the, the prototype plan was Adam and Eve were going to have children and their children would have children and their children's children would have children. And this, these bonds of companionship and love and intimacy and honesty and integrity and all those things would just continue to grow up from one couple to another to the next to the next until there would be billions of people that filled the earth that loved God and walked with Him in the cool of the day and loved one another. And, um, but we know what happened. Adam didn't continue with that. Adam and Eve both sinned, and we'd, we'd be pretty mad at them because we inherited the same sin nature, and because of their mistake, we've, uh, we actually missed out on a really good gift. But the truth is, if we are honest about it, if any of us were in this situation, we would have ended up doing the same thing as well. But as I, the reason I was thinking of this was because we have to remember what we were created for. See, when Adam and Eve sinned, they put Cain upon themselves to be equal with us, the cordless mic. But they, these Cains are heavy. Now, I didn't realize how heavy Cain, so I went to the hardware store to buy them, and, uh, and I bought this. It's only, it's only two meters of Cain, and it was heavy. And I, I said, don't you ask me to come stand with your arms like this for any length of time or tie it to your legs for a day and walk around. The Cain weighed what happened is the chains were wrapped around our legs and they were wrapped around our hands and instead of living free, we began to be bound by these chains. I've got a, an amazing partner in my home that has blessed me with this. I, sometimes I can't believe how I have a, a beautiful little home and we've got a partner and we've got um, and this long extended winter that I love that I've paid $2,350 for lights and cooler that just say, please I beg you, Lord! And uh, I just walk around the park and pray and, and uh, put my headphones on so I can just walk with you. And uh, but praise God, at the moment he's waking up to it. And I hope you all brought a CD and stuff like that. And um, there's one song that he sings that I was listening to this week, and it reminded me of those times. And it's, it's Holy Sin, and it's called Why Do You Do This? 
see, that's what God made us to be. He never made us to be slaves. He never made us to be tied down and able to go, I, I love this picture of the free will. I love, I love the picture of children just so liberated, not bound by mortgage payments and worried about what their wife thinks or their husband thinks or their boss thinks or this person thinks. He's just loving, not thinking about anything except being who he has made you to be. And God has intended for us to be unfettered by shame and unrestrained by the things that God never intended to keep us in bondage. And uh, we want us to live fully free and fully His. But when we do, we most give Him glory. When you are, when you in the Spirit are running like that little girl that she runs through the field, that's when God is most glorified in your life. Not when you're bound down by chains and bondages. And sin is the ultimate bondage. And it is the ultimate uh, worship loss. And it has infinite consequences because God is infinitely holy. We sang about it tonight. Uh, you alone are high and holy. And it's, it's difficult for us to understand this, but we cannot hold on to sin here and try and hold on to God at the same time. You've got to jettison one to be able to embrace the other. We saw in the story that there's another created being. We both created in different ways, us as human beings. And that was an angel by the name of Lucifer. And uh, he took the road of rebellion. He, he literally chose to hell rather than submit and obey. And uh, seemingly his goal is to take as many people with him down that path as he possibly can. So now we go back to Haman, this flawed human being, and the story in the book of Esther. And we see how he makes choices all along the way to reject the ways of God. He's not a Jew. He doesn't know God. But he has opportunities just like everyone does with a conscience to choose what is right or choose what is wrong. And Haman has allowed himself to be bound in chains of bitterness and unforgiveness and unforgiveness. And in so doing, he has become an instrument in the hands of Satan. And he's lost his joy and he's lost his freedom. While we were cycling this week in, um, in Oman, it was a, an amazing um, um, opportunity. It's, it's still this amazing country and region. And get in your car and drive some and go see some of that and see that. God has put it there in this extraordinary region. It's not just downtown Dubai or JRT. There's something extraordinary. We're either one day in it or not even go there. It's another time. I was cycling along and I was thinking about this um, friend of mine. His name is Lance Goodman. And Lance uh, married to a lady called Cindy. About 20 years ago, he had gone cycling on a, on a Sunday morning. He got up at about 6 o'clock in the morning before church, had a little cycle on our beachfront area in Durban. And he was just doing, I mean, he was doing what he usually does. He, he was enjoying himself and exercising. And he got home, had a shower, come to church later and leave for worship. And um, there was another man that was out. He'd been out in the evening before. He'd been out celebrating the birth of a child. And he decided to do it with alcohol and drunk and drunk and drunk. Just hugely drunk. And at 6 in that morning, he was heading home from this drunken party. And uh, he was still drunk. And he hit my friend Lance. And uh, uh, and Lance was uh, knocked over the car and landed on his head and suffered brain damage. There was almost no markings on his body, but he was, he was, uh, his brain was extremely traumatic. And um, there was another guy that was hit as well. His calf was badly torn. The car drove into him. Just drove off, but his number plate fell off his car, so it wasn't too 
long for us to get to that. Life is in a coma for about a month after that. I think I went to the hospital every day for 10 months because I prayed for it. There was, there was an extraordinary amount of faith and expectation for life that was happening. We prayed and we prayed and we prayed. And life came out of the coma with significant joy. The, the, today, as of today, the son is now, his wife was pregnant with his son at the time of this happening. Daniel is now 30 years old and he's never known his dad other than this happening. So that's what God has um, really come to see. About a few months into his recovery and after the accident, he, uh, we were in court because this man had been tried for what he had done. And Cindy was called up by the prosecutor to, to give her, um, her his defense, if you like, to give her take on what she felt um, the law should be and how it should be applied in this situation. And she got up and she said, I want to be clear, I do want justice to be done. She said, but I also want to be clear that I'm a Christian. She said, I, um, I don't want him to, I don't want him to get in trouble. I don't want to see him get really punished. I have chosen not to hold him with a hardened heart. And she said, I will not hold him with a hardened heart. And he came out of the stand and the other guy that took on the accident came up and said that I need you to see her situation. And the moment he got up and received it, he was experiencing towards this guy that hit him. And he had, um, he said, suffered quite severe damage to his leg. And he said, I, I, I can't exercise anymore. The ride is affecting my, my job at work. I've, I've missed out on promotions because of the impact that this accident has upon me. Because of that, it's begun to affect my relationship with my wife. And he sat up and said, if this is what has ruined my life, the, the, full, the full power of the law must be applied. The court recessed after that, and we went out to start, and we were standing with Cindy and this other guy that had part of this case, and she decided to speak for the prosecution. And the prosecutor, a young lady, walked out, and she came right past Cindy. I remember this so distinctly. I remember where I was standing when Cindy said, she walked right past Cindy, and she stuck out her hand to the man like that, and she, and she shook his hand, and she said, thank you, because of your testimony, you've got an answer. And I thought about how she missed the most significant part of the day, that the wife of this man chosen to forgive this one that has so severely hurt him. And the world, the world honors those that seek revenge, that, that get their rights, that get their way. And it frees us to forgive, and, and maybe I'm too Christian, shouldn't I, to get into that category. But it frees those that forgive and release as if they are weak and downtrodden. And that's not the way that Scripture sees it at all. There are two kinds of offense we can take. One is when we shouldn't take it. Like, you come into church and um, you go to greet me, but I'm just going here, and then I walk in the opposite direction, and you go home and go, that stinking pastor. Like, what kind of a church is this? Clearly, he doesn't even love Jesus. How could he not greet me or whatever? And you go home, and you stew in your offense. I want to say, friend, as, as kindly and lovingly as I can, get over it. Suck it up. You know what I mean? Just move on from that. There is no room in the body of Christ for petty offense. And uh, I'm, there, I, I don't want to come and um, soft soap it and, and say, well, I can understand how, how hard it is. It's not hard. Just get over it. Stop doing it wrong. It's, it's childish and immature to pick up offense from things that we shouldn't. And, and probably the vast majority of our offense is in that category. And we just got to get over it. You've got to get over yourself. Get over your petty business. Maybe even have a prayer. It's called the rhino prayer. Say, Lord, I need my skin to be a little bit thicker, please. Because you've put me in the midst of a people that are different from me, with a pastor that can sometimes be a little bit odd. He agrees with me. And um, 
so uh, it just helps me, Lord God, to be able to love those even when I couldn't want to be loved by them to be able to get them to love me. But then there are other situations where the offense is warranted, when, when in a way we have a right to be angry and upset. When somebody really has done something, somebody in a, in a, maybe has come up to us and said something that is unkind or harsh, and it's something that is unfair and doesn't need to be said. Or maybe they've publicly humiliated us, or maybe they've borrowed something from us and never returned it to us and then told us that they didn't get the borrowing from us. Or, or maybe it's something that must be said to us. Maybe they've violated trust or betrayed us or hurt us in some way. And, um, and those are the situations I want to talk about, how we overcome those offenses. Because even if the offense is justified, it can begin to lead us down a path that ends up with us having these chains around us. And uh, it's, uh, offense leads to hatred, and hatred leads to worldly number one point, offense leads to hatred. Look at this verse in Matthew 24, and we saw that with Haman. Matthew 24, verse 10 to 12. This is Jesus. Speaking in the last, about the last days, he says, and then many, I'm using the New King James, and then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. This is a, a, a picture of what happens in society, but in churches as well, once offense is allowed to come in. First comes offense, then comes betrayal, then comes hatred, then comes lawlessness, and then comes cold hearts. And um, that word offended in that scripture there is the Greek word scandalonis. Scandalon is a noun, and that's actually the verb. But um, it says, and that word scandalon is literally a section. I'll just show the next slide, please. And it's that stick there. Oh, how's that old? That. Um, that holds up that basket. That, that little stick, that's what offense is. And when you allow yourself to get offended, it's like you walk into that basket, and when you get offended, the, the, the catch that goes down, the scandal on, uh, is removed, and you are trapped inside that basket. And instead of being free and traded the way that God wants us to be, we suddenly are chained up again and bound in a way that God never intended for our lives. And that's why the devil loves because when I get offended with justice, uh, it leads me and incites me to behavior against it that I would never carry out on the wrong person. But because I'm offended, uh, it's easy for me to be trapped. It's easy for me to, have, to act out in hatred towards it. And the devil knows. He's got us both there. Because I'm hurting Justin. I'm breaking the unity within the body. I'm breaking relationships. And I'm bound by that chain of sin as well. And this happens, this happens in our marriage. Husbands can be used against wives, and wives can be against husbands, and so on and so forth. And the, the devil wants to incite us into the kind of behavior that is not the behavior that he wants and puts in. Some, I've heard about a pastor going into a, a coffin, okay, to cursing the pastor. What? What is going on? How does that happen? How does a Christian get to the place where he views something like that? That's, that's, that's mental. Because when we start down the path, we never think we're going to end up down there. Oh, I'm getting a phone call. And uh, Linda saw something this week. Oh, I know what's going on. I'm taking orders. Dinner for my son for his birthday. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> I hope he's not going to be offended. So, um, 
he had the situation with Jesus. He was in the car. He said, um, gave his mission story. He was in the car. A very rearview mirror, she saw something taking place behind her. It was two men in a bus, and they were holding hands. And she thought, this is a bit odd. And then she thought, it's really a bit odd, because the one man just seems to throw his hands about in a man like this. So Linda sees this thing, this, this man stroking the other man's hand, and she's thinking, wow, this shouldn't be going on, in, uh, especially in Dubai. And then um, she's, uh, she's worried, obviously, about what might be going on. And then she drives forward a bit, and her, she can't see the faces. She can only see them from here down, the, the middle part of her body here. And as she drives forward, she sees him fully in the rearview mirror. And it turns out that it's a school bus called the Nissan Unicorn Express. And this is a Down syndrome boy. And he's, um, what's happened is, when this bus stops, the boy leans forward in the seat and he takes the driver's hand. And the driver leaves his hand there for the boy to hold some form of affliction or pain or peace. And then the boy strokes the driver's hand because he still sees love in the driver. And the driver sees him with this boy. And when the traffic lights change to rain, the boy sits 18 years old in front of her car, back down in the seat again, and the driver drives away. You can see on on how how perspective changes what we see in life. You see, sometimes we pick up, we are offended by people, and they have truly done something to us that is wrong, that shouldn't have done it. We've got every right to be offended, but if, but if we allow it, God will give us a perspective of it that changes the situation completely. And uh, instead of allowing the devil to take us down that road of hate, God can take us down the road of love. There's a scripture right there in from 1 Peter 3, the end of the speech that I'm just going to read, that says, when people hate you, bless you. Isn't that the nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ? The second thing is that offense robs us. When the when uh, Esther chapter 5 again, Haman in verse 11 through to 12 is going on about how amazing his life is. I've got so much money, I've got a Ferrari and a Porsche and a second Ferrari and a third Porsche and whatever. Like I've got 10 sons and however many daughters. I don't even know how many daughters I've got. I'm having tons of misogyny. And um, the king loves me. He thinks I'm the dude. And his wife even invites me to this dinner. And like I'm the only one that ever gets picked up. Woo! And he says, then he says to the boy, Jesse, Yet all of this is worth nothing to me as long as Mordecai, the Jew, is sitting at the king's gate. It's amazing what offense does. It robs us of our joy. The very things that God has blessed us with, we can no longer enjoy because we become offended. It's like looking at the sun. You look up at the sun, and then afterwards you can't see anything. It's that, that offense blinds you to the blessings that you do have. And instead of actually enjoying what you've got, you begin to simmer and feed on this offense that's inside our lives. And the devil loves it when we get into that place. Lastly, offense uses us. I want to say, friends, when we embrace offense, we plain and simply become instruments of Satan. I know that sounds like an incredibly hard thing to say, but if you remember when I went back to um, the whole story about Haman, how he sent out that declaration of what was to take place um, on this day when they were going to kill all the Jews and put an empire of Jews. It says in the next verse, it says this, that they were to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews and to plunder their goods. And then uh, John chapter 10, Jesus, speaking about Satan, says the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Can you see what's happened here is that the devil has imposed his agenda on Haman. And what happens is when we take an offense, the devil can come and impose his agenda upon us. And instead of us um, 
pursuing Him, pursuing God's redemptive purposes, what happens is we shear this off and we, we cause brokenness and strife to come into our homes, to come into our families. Offense allow, uh, allows the enemy to use us to see his plan fulfilled. And thank God that Esther and, uh, and Mordecai were able to overcome this offense so that the scarlet thread would run all the way through to the cross of Christ that we see us today. Which leads me to this, that Christ can overcome offense. In, um, in that scripture, in uh, Esther chapter 5, his wife and his friends say, look, we, why don't you build a gallows and go to the king and have Mordecai hanged on the gallows. And that word gallows, is, is, it's, it's translated away, but it literally means a tree. And a tree is very significant in our understanding of redemptive history because it was upon the tree that Christ was crucified. In Deuteronomy, the next slide, please. Deuteronomy um, 21.23, it, it speaks about the fact that everybody that is hanged on a tree shall be cursed. And then it speaks in Galatians about how Christ came, became a curse for us. He hung upon the tree, upon the tree. See, Christ is the one that bore every offense and every injustice that we could bear. He took it upon himself so that we could respond instead of out of offense, we could respond with forgiveness. There's this amazing story in Matthew chapter 18, and uh, I'm going to wind up with this, where this, uh, it's the parable of the merciful servant. How many of you know that parable? Two, good, nice. There's a few people know it. Thanks, Lauren. So um, in this parable, there's this man that owes an extraordinary amount of money to the king. I, I don't know how much money that is in your mind. And so, so sometimes people come to us and they tell us about how much money they owe, and one of the, the, the rules of counseling is you never show shock. You know what I'm saying? If somebody comes to you and says, I'm completely confessed that I did this, you don't go, <gasps> did what? Like this, because it makes it more difficult for you to continue the counseling process with them. So what happens is they say, I did this, and you go, ah, rub your chin maybe like this. Whatever the things you use to make sure that you don't show terrible shock on your face. So I can remember some people coming and sitting with me and going, so we've got into some money trouble. Oh, what sort of trouble? What sort of region are we talking about? And then, like, this number comes up, and I know how much they earn. You're, you're 850,000 dirham in debt. Well, I just about drove back to Somerset. I'm thinking, what? What? How, what? Who even gives you that amount of money? How do you get into that much debt? I, w- I wouldn't be able to sleep tonight. I would lie in bed every night. Just, my face was dripping with sweat thinking about the 450,000. And uh, I know their situation. Like, take them 100 times longer to pay it back. Now, this is not 450,000. This in real terms is something like $10 million. And I know he's thinking, oh, well, this cash is coming. We'll do us a, a, a deal and give us some cash. He's not coming to give you the money. Okay, we're done. If we're in that kind of debt, we are done forever. You're never going to pay it back. And that's what happened with this. And he realized. So when, he, he, when this thing happens, he goes to the king and he says, please, king, I'm sorry. I'm still on begging. Have mercy upon me. I can't pay it back. I'm, I'm completely lost. Please do something. I'm appealing to your kindness. Do something for me, please. This king, amazingly, says that, I am going to have mercy upon you. I'm going to release you. And he releases him. It's like, imagine you owed 450000 Every night you lie in there wetting your sheets and your tears and your sweat, wondering how you're going to pay this back. And then somebody comes to you one day and he says, Hey, Rob, I've decided, well, the Lord's told me to pay your debt back. Oh, I thought that was 450000 but no problem, I'm going to pay it. What would you feel? 
said, I walk out of that room like, like I've been there with the bullpen, you know. I've been running around with joystick. I've been pushing everybody I saw. Been, and this guy comes out of the room like this, and he lets us off, and he, and he sees somebody else that's open. And when did you open up? Somebody like, like Wayne. Wayne opened 5,000 doors. Not in real life, just sort of, unless, unless it's something I don't know about. So say Wayne opens the 5,000 doors, and, and I, I come out and say, Wayne, you owe me 5,000 doors. I'm fucking little, 450 bucks. And he really does own me. It's not like I'm making this up. It's not like I'm offended for no reason. I've got a genuine, he's got a genuine thing. And Wayne said to me, hey, Rob, I, I just, I don't, I can't pay you back. So, so Wayne, I, I want that money. And the first one last week, I want it now. Can't do anything about it. Well, then you and Angela and Lauren and Kathy and Ellen are going to jail. The whole lot of you are going to throw you all in the prison. And that's exactly what happened to this guy. He takes a million throws him into prison. And then Ecclesiastes, about as the other service, realizes this stuff is too real. See, the, the, the point of the story is this, that, that whatever had been done against him was wiped out and forgiven by God. Whatever offenses and I, and my, my Noah, I haven't walked in your shoes. Understand that. I'm not, I haven't been sexually molested. I haven't been betrayed and married. I haven't had walked walk through some of the things that you've had to walk through. But in comparison to the debt that every one of us owes to Christ, whatever's been done against us is the 5,000 during debt compared to the 350,000 during debt that God has released us from. He goes on in, in verse 35 of chapter 18 to say this, and that's exactly because he gets the, the unmerciful servant gets put in the prison. He says, and that's exactly what my Father in heaven is going to do to each one of you who don't forgive unconditionally anyone who asks for mercy. And some people say, well, this is Jesus teaching the old covenant. Jesus is the new covenant. Jesus is it. What he's saying is this, is that God has made us to run free. I said to Sarah this morning, I said, I've given you this, the bicycle chain, and next time we go riding in Oman. Can you imagine adding this to your, to your load? But God has made us. God has made us to be free. But if we choose to hold on to offense, we end up in a prison of our own making. God has intended us to live. What is it? When Christ died on the cross, He claimed us. He forgave us our sins. And every pain that we have carried before that, we are able to look differently and say, I'm done with you. And He says, but if you will not forgive, it's like you take the chains up again and you them on yourself, and you no longer live as you were created to live. We begin to live in a bondage, and so He calls us to forgive, not because to other people, the other person that you don't forgive might be somebody who sits back there. Maybe they're mad. Not because they're particularly remorseful, so they might not be remorseful and fully forgive. Not because they are just another human being like you and I, and flawed the way that we are. That's not the reason why we forgive people. The reason why we forgive others is because we have been forgiven. And as mercy has been extended to us, we extend mercy to others. And in doing that, friends, does the payback. And in doing that, we are set free. As somebody said to me after meeting this morning, that Rich and I met for two weeks, and that she came to town with us, and said, there comes a place where she has finally forgiven me from people that hurt her. She says she can't believe, for the first time in her life, ever known to be the one to forgive. And you know what happens is 
we've come to Christ and we've come to the cross. And it's a place where we can actually let go of the chains and instead we, we, we keep them with us. And we say, I'm not going to let go of this unforgiveness. I'm going to make them pay. But you know who's paying? We're the ones that are paying. We're the ones that are destroying the career that God has given us. 1 Peter 3 verse 9, the scripture I mentioned earlier says, Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do, and He will grant you His blessing. And so God calls us to be this community that is forgiving. Sonia, I wonder if you could just come up and just quickly on your own, and we'll just start and the guys are doing communion, if you could start passing that around. We're going to break bread together, and I saw the last slide, please. And uh, in the scriptures it says this, this is something we do in remembrance of, uh, of Jesus, do this in remembrance of Jesus. And when we break bread, we look in three different directions. Number one is we look back. We look back at what Christ did for us. His death on the cross is a historical fact. Uh, historians don't deny that there was a Jesus. Most historians don't even deny that there was a man called Jesus that was killed upon the cross. Where they begin to dispute the story is whether he was raised from the dead or not. And this took place in our past. And what happened was Christ, as we grabbed the bread and we grabbed the wine, and he gave his body and he shed his blood for us. He was a substitute on that cross. It had to happen sometime in history. God chose that as the perfect time. Christ went to the cross and died upon the cross in your place and my place so that we might receive forgiveness. The second view of it is the present view. And um, just try and stay with me even as you're grabbing um, the, the elements, okay? The second view is the present view. And this is where what Wayne spoke, when we knew about earlier, we, we, we audit our lives as a church. We don't just carelessly come to the table. And I know that plastic cup. And I know it's just a piece of bread. And I wish we could sit around a big table and take a big loaf of warm bread and break it open and have goblets and pass them around. And, but, we're gonna, but it doesn't take away from the seriousness of the sacrament that we take on in right now. And we order our lives and say, Lord, is there some part of my life where I'm carrying this cross? Is there somebody that I'm holding something against? Is there somebody that I'm wishing revenge upon? But then, friends, you've got to deal with that now before you drink and partake of the bread. And the last aspect of communion is that we look forward because it says, do this in remembrance of me until I come back. See, once Christ returns, we don't need to do this anymore. He is coming back. We know that, hey? And when He comes back, these things will be laid aside. Everything that causes sin will be done away with. And we will, we will be in the perfection of that freedom. But one of the prayers that Christ taught us to pray is, Lord, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth in my life as it is in heaven. And I added in my life as it is as it was said to us. Lord, let your will be done in my life as it is in heaven. In heaven, I will be completely free. Every chain will be broken. And friends, God wants us to begin to bring heaven to earth and live in that sanctified freedom. I'm not saying our lives will be easy. I'm just saying we should never allow ourselves to be put under bondage. And as we break this bread, it's that sense of looking forward. Come on, Tom. Come on, just eat the big piece of bread and then you're set. Why don't you stand with me, please? 
invite the Holy Spirit and I want Him to remind you of maybe where you hold in the story. It might be something you, you don't even think you, you think about it, really. But it's the Spirit that that is pinging in your life and reminding you, the Holy Spirit's trying to bring it to the surface of your heart. And um, you you only just say, God, Give this person what they've done to me. I'm not talking about the, the offenses that aren't warranted. You've got to lay those things down. I didn't do it to you last week. You've just got to get over it. I'm talking about the things you just really have hurt me. And you're going to hand it over to the Lord. And you say, Lord, as I look at this wound, and as I bring it before you, you're going to say, Lord, I am forgiven. My 450,000 Thank you. 